mean, tonight we're in, get in the eighth chapter. Um, Gideon subdues the Midianites, and then we have the uh, situation with his ephod. We'll explain that. His um, influence came to a sad end with that part of this chapter. And then the chapter ends with his death and Israel's apostasy again. So let's uh, look to the Lord and pray as we get ready to begin our Bible study. Father, thank you for this day. We thank you, Lord, for the good news with our sister Deloa. She's uh, beginning out of ICU today after being in there since Monday. We thank you, Lord, two days ago she was in critical condition. She was uh, intubated and on the ventilator. And, Lord, you, you brought her out, and we praise you, and we thank you for that. Um, getting a chance to see her yesterday and today. We just, we're just so encouraged, Lord. We thank you for answering our prayers. It's only according to your goodness that you've answered our prayers concerning her. And we thank you, Lord, for bringing Harvey out of the hospital again. He's back home. Uh, he's on oxygen. Uh, he still has to do rehab. But, Lord, we're praying that he's able to come off the oxygen, that he's able to resume his rehab and continue to recover from uh, his stroke and the complications from it, Lord, with his speech and his mobility, his balance, and his breathing. So, Lord, we're continuing to pray for Brother Harvey also. We thank you for what you have done with him. Lord, as we turn to your word, uh, help us tonight, help me to preach this text well as we exposit it. Uh, fill me with your spirit to teach this text well. And, Lord, send your spirit to illuminate the truths that we will hear tonight concerning you, concerning your nature and your character, and concerning uh, commands for us uh, that we can learn from this word. Lord, be with us and refresh us. In Christ's name, amen. So that's usual, customary. We tackle these uh, narratives in sections. So we're going to begin looking at verses 1 through 3, and then go from there. So this is the word of the Lord. This is after the 300 men had helped to defeat the Midianites. It says here, Now the men of Ephraim said to him, Why have you done this to us by not calling us when you went to fight with the Midianites? And they reprimanded him sharply. So he said to them, what have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abizar? God has delivered into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb. And what was I able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger toward him subsided when he said that. Hmm. So, uh, the men of Ephraim, they did join in the fight against Midian when Gideon called out to them in the latter verses of the seventh chapter. Look at verses 24 and 25. Uh, that says Gideon sent messengers throughout the mountains of Ephraim saying come down against the Midianites. So he had called them to, to help them to fight. But they were upset. <laughs> this is, this is kind of petty. Ephraim was upset because Gideon did not call them before the battle started. You know, so that was that was basically petty because Gideon's initial call was to uh, Manasseh, which was his own tribe. This is in uh, chapter 6, I think verse 35. Let me see, chapter 6. He called out to his own tribe. It says here in chapter 6, um, he called out to his own, I'm sorry, chapter uh, 6, verse 35. It says here, and he sent messengers throughout all of Manasseh, which was his tribe. And also um, sent messages to Asher, Zebulon, and Naphtali. And they came up to meet him. So initially he called those tribes. He didn't call Ephraim at the beginning. So Ephraim was kind of, the tribe of Ephraim was upset because they were not there in the beginning. So it seemed like uh, the men of Ephraim cared more about recognition than about the overall 
uh, battling for the overall good of Israel. They had no right to be jealous. They should have been happy that God's people were rescued from uh, the Midianites and that they took some part in the victory. <coughs> and this is a principle right here that we can learn from this. Is that jealousy can often hinder the work of God. When there's jealousy, when people are jockeying for recognition. It can actually hinder the work of God. It can be a great distraction. Ephraim didn't have to be jealous because they still participated in the victory. It doesn't matter whether you were called early or late. It doesn't matter. The fact is, is that they were able to participate in the battle. And such it is in the kingdom of God. You know, Jesus told a parable about that in Luke's gospel about uh, the parable of the laborers. Where some laborers were, were, were called early and they agreed to certain wages and then the laborers that were called later were paid the same wages as those who had had worked all day. And um, let me see the parable of the laborers. And so what Jesus, the point that he was making was that uh, in the kingdom, it doesn't matter when a person comes into the kingdom, they will receive the same rewards, um, you know, no, no matter when they came. So it says in this, no, I'm sorry, it's in Matthew 20, because I remember preaching on this. A landowner goes out early in the morning and hires men and agrees to pay them uh, the daily rate, a silver coin for a day's work. And he hired them at various times of the day, 9 a.m., 12 p.m., 3 p.m., and 5 p.m. And he promises all the workers a fair wage. This is the parable of the workers in the vineyard in uh, Matthew uh, 20. So what happened was when they all got paid, it says because, uh, here it is, this is uh, verse 8. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. Well, he's, he's going to pay the last ones first. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then work his way up to those who were hired first. So in our in our mind, we would think, okay, the ones who were hired last will get paid less than those who worked all day. That's kind of our thinking, right? So it says here, verse 9, the workers who were hired about 5 in the afternoon came and each received a denarius, which is a day's wages. So in those who came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, said, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Did you not agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give uh, the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do whatever I want to do with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and first last. So the, the principle of this is that the labor, the, the, the main meaning of, of this parable deals with uh, doing work for the kingdom. That it doesn't matter when a person comes into the kingdom of Christ, whether they come first or whether they come last, whether a person is saved the day before Christ comes back, guess what? They're still going to be received into the kingdom. So it doesn't matter. When he says last will be first and the first last, it means no matter how long or hard a believer works during his lifetime, the reward of eternal life will be the same given to all. It'll be eternal bliss in heaven. So it doesn't matter when a person came into the kingdom, you know, through uh, salvation. Think about the thief on the cross. The thief on the cross confessed Christ while he was on the cross. His life of service was limited to a moment of repentance and confession of faith. This is in uh, Luke, Luke 23. He received the same reward of eternal life as a person who's been saved for 60 years. 
Think about that. So this thief on the cross, he received Christ the day of his death, basically. He received the same eternal life as a person who's been saved for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. So that principle reminded me of this chapter right here in, in Judges 8 where Ephraim, yeah, they wasn't there at the beginning of the battle, but they still had a chance to participate in defeating the Midianites. They received the reward of the joy of defeating God's enemies. It shouldn't have mattered whether they were called from the beginning or not. And as believers, we're not to think that way either. We're not to take that type of uh, that type of jealous uh, attitude when it comes to those things. And so what, what did uh, Gideon do? He flattered them. He didn't challenge their pride. He soothed their pride by uh, complimenting them and giving them the recognition that they seem to crave. He says, what have I done now in comparison with you? <laughs> so that's kind of a way of flattering them. So his reply was a wise way to deal with the contention uh, when there was work for the Lord to be done. So he didn't get combative with them. He just, you know, basically flattered them and, 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 and calmed them down. And this is the mark of a good leader. You know, good conflict resolution. So then we have the sins of Succoth and Penuel. Verses 4 through 9 says, When Gideon came to the Jordan, he and the 300 men who were with him crossed over, exhausted but still in pursuit. So keep that in mind. Then he said to the men of Succoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted, and I am pursuing Zeba and Zemuna, the kings of Midian. And the leaders of Succoth said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zemuna now in your hand, that we should give bread to your army? So they don't want to help them. So Gideon said, For this cause, when the Lord has delivered Zeba and Zalmunna into your hand, then I will tear your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. Then he went up from there to Penuel and spoke to them the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth answered. So neither one of them uh, gave them bread to help feed those soldiers. So he also spoke to the men of Penuel saying, When I come back in peace, I will tear down this tower. Now, the first thing to note is that these 300 soldiers, these 300 men who were with him, the scripture says they were exhausted but still in pursuit. We can only imagine how tired they were. They had just uh, had a victorious battle over uh, the Midianites. They fought hard and they pursued the enemy over a very long distance. But Charles Spurgeon said this about this passage. This is, this is so good. He says, if you, dear brethren and sisters, will give yourselves wholly to God's work, although you will never get tired of it, you will often get tired in it. If a man has never tired himself with working for God, <coughs> I should think he never has done any work that was worth doing. Then he continues, let us also serve the Lord when every movement is painful when even to think is wearisome. These men were faint. You know what it is for a soldier to be faint. It is no nonsense, no pretense. It is a real fainting. Yet to go running on when you are ready to faint, to keep right on when you are ready to drop. This is the very trying work. Yet let us do it, brethren, by God's grace. Some people only pray when they feel like praying. But we need most to pray when we feel like we cannot pray. If we were only to preach, some of us, when we felt like preaching, we should not often preach. That is so true. That is Christian work. We, we persevere. We go on when we don't feel like it. We, we press on, as Paul says, putting those things behind and looking forward to those things which are ahead. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling in Christ Jesus serving Christ can be tiring we get we don't get tired of doing the work but we can get tired in it 
And that's what Spurgeon was saying, and that's what we see here. These soldiers, they had just come out the battlefield, and they are tired, but yet they're still what? They're still going, as the scripture says. They're exhausted, but still in pursuit. That is indicative of the Christian life. And as Spurgeon said, we may, you know, think about it in prayer. We may not feel like praying, but we need to pray when we feel like we can't pray. Sometimes, honestly, I don't feel like preaching. I'm not always on on 10 <laughs> every Sunday morning. Sometimes I get I get very discouraged when I come to church. Or I may get very discouraged this period just because of being, you know, being a pastor. Sometimes it can be very discouraging. But with God's grace, like like Spurgeon said, if we were to only preach some of us when we felt like preaching, we should not often preach. And so that's sometimes the life of a, of, of a preacher. Sometimes a preacher just doesn't feel like preaching. Think about your job. You may love your job, but sometimes you don't feel like getting up and going to work. But you go anyway, not only just because of bills, okay, but you do it even when you don't feel like it. That is the work of Christians. That is our work in service to the Lord. That isn't working raising our children. That is in uh, doing any type of service. Remember, everything, all of life is worship, not just the religious stuff you do. All of our life is an act of worship, whether you're working, whether you're raising children, whether you're uh, sitting at home retired. No matter what vocation you have, it's still an act of worship to God. You're working as to the Lord. And we do that even when we don't feel like it. So that's the principle we see here with this, with these 300 men. They were exhausted, but they were still in pursuit and they didn't receive any help. So Gideon had asked for help in the, uh, from the men of Succoth and they didn't help at all. And this was probably discouraging for Gideon and those men fighting the battle. They didn't ask these people to fight on the front, front lines. They just asked him to support those uh, who did. They just wanted, you know, some bread. But they were unwilling and they made excuses. And sometimes as Christians, we're going to face resistance. Even from our own friends. Even from those who are close to us. Just as these people face resistance. But again, even when we don't receive that help. We don't let it hinder or discourage our work. This is very discouraging for getting to hear that these people, didn't, these groups of people didn't want to help them. But guess what? They still had work to do. They still had to go and pursue who they were pursuing. So. Verse 10 says. Zeba and Zamuna were at Karkor and the armies with them, about 15,000. These were those who were left over because it was 135,000 in all, and these 15,000 are left over. It was 120,000 that, that perished, as it says here. Then Gideon went up by the road of those who dwelt in the tents in the east of Nobah and Jokbeha, and he attacked the army while the camp felt secure. When Zeba and Zalmanna fled, he pursued them, and he took the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmanna, and routed the whole army. So Gideon led a surprise attack again. And remember, we have some extra people in this army, because it wasn't the same as the 300 that attacked uh, back in the 12th chapter, but it was still a small army against a much larger army because Ephraim had come to join them now so it wasn't just those 300 but it wasn't a sizable amount more so this was a surprise attack and it says Gideon pursued them and routed the whole army so this was Gideon being very persistent he fought until the battle was won he went after the leaders of the opposition he relentlessly pursued the enemy and this is what Christ does for us. Christ in his work, in his life, 
He pursued our enemy, Satan. He defeated death. He defeated hell in the grave. He did it with precision. He did it on the cross. He defeated our enemies on the cross. He gave flight to Satan. He gave flight to death. He gave flight to sin. He defeated those powers on the cross. He did it with great victory and great precision. That's what Christ does for us. He subdues our enemies for us. And when Christ subdues enemies, guess what? He subdues them. He puts them to rest. And so when we see Gideon doing this, we, we think about what, what Christ did. Gideon was bold enough to do this because he saw what God, you know, that God had done great things before in similar circumstances. He trusted God for great things in the present. And so he pursued these enemies and he routed the whole army just as, just as Christ does. Christ disarms our spiritual enemy, Satan, and all his demons. And he can also disarm our enemies in the flesh and gives chase to them. So now Gideon is going to repay Succoth and Penuel. So verse 13 says, Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from battle from the ascent of Harry's, and he caught a young man of the men of Succoth and interrogated him, and he wrote down for him the leaders of Succoth and his lead and his elders, 77 men. Then he came to the men of Succoth and said, Here are Zeba and Zamuna, about whom you ridiculed me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zamuna now in your hand, that we should give bread to your weary men? So he's like, Here they are, right here. And he took the elders of the city. How many of them was it? 77 men. And thorns of the wilderness and briars. And with them he taught the men of Succoth. Then he tore down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of that city. So these men, you know, they didn't want to help Gideon or his army before. Victory was assured. They refused to help Gideon. So Gideon would punish them as he had promised. So Gideon publicly whipped. That's what he did with the, um, the thorns of the wilderness and the briars. He, he used it to whip them. He whipped them with thorns and briars as a method of public rebuke. That was a very painful rebuke. Man, think about a briar. We used to call them sticker briars. <laughs> you know, in those rose bushes, boy, woo, man. Imagine getting whipped by them. And then... He went to Penuel and tore down the tower. So, and the reason why he probably did this is because uh, they were uh, significant supporters of the Midianites. And they were traitors against Israel, so they had to be defeated. And so now he turns his attention to the king. So verses 18 through 21. It says here, and he said to Zeba and Zalmunna, what kind of men were they whom you killed at Tabor? So they answered, As you are, so were they. Each one resembled the son of a king. Then he said, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had let them live, I would not kill you. And he said to Jether, his firstborn, Rise, kill them. But youth would not draw but the youth rather would not draw his sword for he was afraid because he was still a youth so Zeba and Zalmunna <laughs> said rise yourself and kill us for as a man is so is his strength so Gideon arose and killed Zeba and Zalmunna and took the crescent ornaments that were on their camels necks so apparently these two Midianite kings were responsible for the death of Gideon's brothers. As it says, what kind of men were they whom you killed at Tabor? And they answered, as you are, so were they. So they were saying that uh, they were his brothers. Each one resembled the son of a king. And what did Gideon say? They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. 
He says, if you had let them live, I would not kill you. So these two kings that killed his, his, his brothers. They killed his brothers. So Gideon wanted this known, and he wanted this to be confessed before he executed them. He wanted them to confess to killing his brothers. And guess what? They did. And so they deserved death. And they encouraged the executioner to kill them. And Gideon ended up doing it. Instead of his young son, Gideon ended up doing it himself. So these men knew that they had done wrong. You know, and this shows something. How God can work in the hearts of his people's enemies. These men knew that they were wrong. They killed his brothers and they asked to be killed because they knew that they were wrong. Many people don't do that now, right? People go to court, they, they, they're on trial for murder, and they'll plead what? Not guilty. <laughs> Instead of saying, yes, sir, judge, I did it. I deserve, I deserve life in prison. I deserve the death penalty. You won't, you'll scarcely find a person who would just admit to that, right? But these men did it. God can work in even evil people's hearts. And that's what they did. So he killed them. So now this is the meat of this passage that I want to get to about Gideon's ephod and uh, and his death. So this is verse 22. The men of Israel said to Gideon. So after all this happened, he killed those two kings. The men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us. Both you and your son and your grandson also, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. And, uh, the Lord shall rule over you. Now, the desire for a human king up until this point Israel never had a human king. They had leaders. They had Moses, and then they had Joshua. And of course, in the era of the judges, they only had judges. So the desire for a human king over Israel started early in the nation's history. So, hundreds of years later, in the days of Samuel the prophet, God gave Israel the king they asked for. And speaking of which, you'll find that in the book of 1 Samuel. But the thing is, Israel were not, was not even supposed to have a king. So we turn to 1 Samuel, the ninth chapter. I'm sorry, 1 Samuel, the 8th chapter. I want you to hear if you hear, see if you hear something similar to what Gideon said. So this is 1 Samuel 8 chapter. Israel demands a king. 1 Samuel 8. Now it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of the firstborn was Joel. And the name of the second one was Abijah. And they were judges in Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice. And all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the other nations. So Israel wanted to be like the other nations. All the pagans in other nations now, understand, were the pagan nations. All the other pagan nations had kings. Samuel, uh, Gideon just killed two kings. Joshua killed kings of these pagan nations but Israel wanted to be like the pagans but look at what um, happened here in verse 6 listen, listen to what the Lord says but the thing displeased Samuel when they said give us a king to judge us what did we just hear the men of Israel said to Gideon rule over us now back to 1 Samuel 8 verse 7 and the Lord said to Samuel I'm sorry the end of verse 6 says, So Samuel prayed to the Lord, 
Look at what the Lord said to Samuel. Heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me that I should not reign over them. According to all the works which they have done since the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, with which they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now therefore heed their voice. However, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. And I'm not going to read the rest of this. Verses 10 through 18 tells what's going to happen with this king. In other words, it's not going to go good. So back to Gideon. Gideon says, I will not rule over you in verse 23, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. The Lord, he is God. We're not to look to other people to rule. These people have desire for a human king. And why do they do that? Because they look to Gideon as their deliverer. He delivered them from the hands of the Midianites. So now they want him to rule over them. But we're going to see that Gideon is a sinner. Just like any other type of human leader. Israel found relief in the judges who were raised up of God. And they thought that by securing a leader that they would preserve themselves from many more troubles. But Gideon said, I would not rule over you. And this was a good response from him. Because he understood that it was not his place to take the throne of Israel. It was the Lord who was supposed to rule over his people. He knew not to take the Lord's place. Because in our fallen nature, even now, we look to man to rule over us. We look to man to save us. Some people look to their pastors to, to be their saviors. They, they put too much on them. Not here at our church, thankfully, but, but some people look to their pastors as like almost a god. You hear them say, my bishop said, or my apostle said, or, or my pastor said, not what the Lord said. Now, if your pastor's quoting a scripture or something like that, then that's different. But some people speak of their pastor as if he's, he's a god, like he's a deity to be worshipped. Yes, you do honor the man of God. You honor the, 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 the one who labors in the gospel and the preaching of the gospel and the shepherding of God's people. You do honor them. They're, they're worthy of double honor, as scripture says. But you don't put them on this pedestal where you look to them for everything. No, we look to God because we don't want to usurp God's authority. That's why Gideon said, I will not rule over you. No, not me. There's only one divine ruler, and that is God. There's only one king, one prince, one prophet, and that is the Lord. Many people look to political candidates to rule over them, to be their God, whether it's Donald Trump, Joe Biden, doesn't matter. Both, both sides are bad at that. People, when Obama was elected, you know, he was worshipped. When Trump was elected, he was worshipped. Because we're looking to man, we're looking to sinners, just like us, to rule over us. But there's only one ruler, capital R, and that is the Lord God. That's why Gideon said, no, the Lord will rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. And just like God told the prophet Samuel that we just read, they're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me. How do we reject God? By looking to other people to rule over us. By looking to other people to be our savior, whether it is a president, whether it is a political party, whether it is a, a certain leader like a pastor or a community leader or whatever, an organization. We look for those things to save us. And when we do that, we're rejecting God as ruler. 
We can look to a spouse, to a boyfriend or girlfriend, or, or to our child to deliver us from the, the, the misery that we feel, or our favorite pet, or it could be anything. Remember, anything could be an idol. Look to our cell phones, look to social media to rule over us. Instead of looking to God. So Gideon had the right answer when he said he did not want to be a king. But yet in the rest of this chapter, he acted like one. And we're going to see this in verses 24 through 26. Again, they wanted Gideon to rule, rule over them, but they didn't know what they were asking for. So Gideon said to them, I would like to make a request of you that each of you would give me the earrings from his plunder. The plunder was what they took from the uh, Midianites when they defeated them. You, know, you always plundered the enemy. You, you took all the good stuff from them. For they had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites. So they answered, we would gladly give them. And they spread out a garment and each man threw into it the earrings from his plunder. Now the weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. I'll, I'll tell you how much that translates to. Besides the crescent ornaments, pendants, and purple robes which were on the kings of Midian. And besides the chains that were around their camels necks. So, what did Gideon do? There were more than 50 pounds of gold. That was quite a fortune. That's how much the, these shekels uh, translate into 1,700 uh, 1, shekels. That's, that translates to uh, about 50 pounds of gold. That's a lot. That's a lot of gold. That's a lot of plunder. And so look at verse 27. It says here, well, I'm going to treat that verse by itself, but, but 24 to 26. So they gather all this plunder. The people were happy to give it. They were giving it to Gideon because, you know, he, he helped lead them to, to victory. But what this did was this lifted Gideon far above the level of the people. That's what it did. So they gave him far above what he actually needed. And what did this do? This, this lifted him up in pride. This lifted him up in pride. And so what happens in verse 27? Gideon made it into an ephod. And set it up in his city, Ophrah. And all Israel... Here we go. Played the harlot with it there. It became a snare to Gideon and to his house. All that gold they gave to him, he made an ephod out of, and I'll, I'll explain what is wrong with that. First of all, an, an, an ephod was a, a shirt-like garment worn by the priests of Israel. God had prescribed this in Exodus, the 28th uh, chapter. It says here in uh, Exodus 28 and 4, and these are the garments which they shall make. These are for the priests. A breastplate, an ephod, a robe, a skillfully woven tunic, a turban, and a sash. So ephods belong to the priest. Gideon was not a priest. So this is obviously wrong. And the scripture doesn't say why Gideon did it. We just know that he did it. So Gideon sinned against God. It was an expression of pride. He sought to lift himself in the eyes of the people. So he did something that only priests were supposed to do. Now it was never intended to set up idolatrous worship. 
but to be a symbol of civil power. However, that's what it turned into. So he was not supposed to do this. Now, he didn't set up an idol, but he made an ephod, and it was an imitation of something that was worn by the high priest. But this is what Spurgeon said about sin and how this happens. Spurgeon said, but ah, dear friends, you see here that if we go half an inch beyond what God's word warrants, we always get into mischief. So he didn't, although he didn't set up an idol, this ephod was an imitation of what the priest wore. So that was just going beyond God's word, even just a little. That we, if we go just an inch beyond what God's word requires or warrants, guess what? We were always going to mischief. What this shows is when people try to see how much they can get away with with violating God's word guess what happens you end up going farther than you even realized that's the way sin works just go a little bit just an inch beyond what God's word warrants it will always lead to mischief. It will always lead to sin and even greater sin. We call that unintended consequences. I guarantee you when Gideon made this ephod that he had no idea that Israel was going to play the harlot. He had no idea that was going to happen. But guess what? That was the consequence of it. So all Israel played the harlot. The people of Israel enjoyed this idolatrous worship. This beautiful and expensive ephod, guess what? It became a snare, as it says here in the scripture, the end of verse 27, to Gideon, his family, and all of Israel. So, although Gideon was very faithful to God, he was obedient. He was filled with faith. Remember, he took 300 men to help defeat the Midianites. But we can still have moments where we get lifted up in pride and we sin against God. And it can lead to grave consequences. And that's what we see with Ephod. I mean, with uh, Gideon and the Ephod. So we get to verses 28 through 30. Thus Midian was subdued before the children of Israel. So they lifted their heads no more. And the country was quiet for 40 years in the days of Gideon. So God had given them 40 years of rest. Then Jeroboam the son of Joash went and dwelt in his own house. Gideon had 70 sons who were his own offspring for he had many wives. And his concubine who was in Shechem also bore him a son whose name was called Abimelech. Now Gideon the son of Joash died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash his father in Ophrah among the Abizrites. So, Midian was subdued. Gideon had ruled as a judge of Israel. It was a success. But in many ways, it was a spiritual failure because of the situation with the ephod. Now, he had a harem. He had many wives. And I'll say this about polygamy. Because, you know, many people say, well, you know, in, in the Bible, you know, they try to justify polygamy by uh, saying people in the Bible were polygamous. They had multiple wives. And you know what? That is true. But this is the thing we have to understand. First of all, 
We don't live under the old covenant. We, we, live, we live under the new covenant. That's the first thing. But also, although the Old Testament never directly condemns polygamy, Jesus did in the New Testament in Matthew 19. And also 1 Timothy 3 and 2. When Timothy said that a husband must, an, an elder must be the husband of one wife. But the Old Testament does show the bitter fruit of polygamy. The stories of polygamous families in the Old Testament, such as Jacob or David, are stories of conflict and crisis. Jacob had 12 sons by many different wives. And those brothers, those 12 brothers, had such conflict that they took one of their own brothers, Joseph, and took off his coat of many colors and threw him into a pit. Their own brother. <laughs> you telling me that's not bitter fruit from polygamy? David, his own son Absalom, rebelled against him. So, the Old Testament does, and those are just two examples. The Old Testament does show the bitter fruit of polygamy. It and it and the, the scriptures don't shed polygamy in a good light. And another thing about it is this: we look at the definition of love, biblical love. You can't love two women at the same time equally. You can't. It's impossible. Or three women or four women. You're not going to love them all equally. That's how sinful our human hearts are. So Gideon had all these women. Think about Solomon. Solomon had what? 700, 700 wives and 300 concubines. What did it do to him? It led him away from God. He began to worship the gods of his wives. And that's in 1 Kings 11 where the scripture says that Solomon's heart had departed from the Lord. Why? Because he had all these foreign wives. King Xerxes in the book of Esther, same thing. He had a harem of women. He kicked his own wife Vashti out because she would not show for him in front of his guests. And he picked Esther from his harem of, of women. He had conflict in his home, in, in, in the palace. So polygamy is never put in a good light in scripture. So I want to say that uh, because it says here he had many, many wives. But why did men back then have harems? It was a way to express their their wealth by saying look at all the wives and children I can support this was very common in these ancient uh, Middle Eastern cultures if you had a harem it was like impressive because you were able to support all these wives and all these children that came from it so we have to understand the cultural implications of that uh, from thousands of years ago but guess what that's not the case now So, as we close out, we'll look at these next few verses here. Again, his concubine was in Shechem. He bore him a son whose name was Abimelech. So what Gideon was doing, he was assuming or hoping for a hereditary rule, someone to come after him. Now, the name Abimelech means my father a king. So Gideon intended that his son would become leader of Israel after he was gone. I'm not going to do a spoiler alert, but uh, when we get to the uh, ninth chapter, we're going to see that that's not going to quite work out. Abimelech had a very bad downfall. So it says here, Gideon died at a good old age. We don't know how old he was, but we know that he died at a good old age. And here's the epitaph, the last sad part here. Verses 33 through 35. So it was 
as soon as Gibeon died, Gideon died rather, what did Israel do? They played the harlot. They committed spiritual adultery. That's what that meant. They hoard themselves to the idols. That's what idolatry is. It is spiritual adultery. It is betrayal. It is treason against a holy God. So it says, as soon as Gideon was dead, that the children of Israel, they didn't waste time, did they? They again played the harlot with the bells and made Baal Berith their God. Thus the children of Israel did not remember the Lord their God. Here we go again. Who had delivered them from the hands of all the enemies on every side. Nor did they show kindness to the house of Jerubel. In accordance with the good that he had done for Israel. So not only did they turn away from God. They also mistreated Gideon's family. So by serving Baal. Israel basically said what really matters is money and success. And what they did, they followed Gideon's example in his later years. Because what did Gideon do? He took that gold, he made a gold ephod, which represented basically money and success. So they basically followed Gideon's lead, which was a sad legacy for Gideon. We can lead a bad legacy for those coming behind us without even knowing it if we just focus on certain things. So as soon as he was dead, the children of Israel played the harlot with the bells. Again, when you worship man, when you worship people, when you lift them up on a pedestal, when you look to them as your God, when they're gone, you're like, what am I going to do now? What am I going to do now? We our idols can be exposed when, when they're not around. Like We can see who do we really worship. Do we really worship God? When that person is not around to influence us or to encourage us, can we still worship God instead of worshiping that person? And they made Baal Bereth their God. The name Baal Bereth means Baal of the Covenant. So this means that they regarded Baal as their covenant God, not Yahweh. Think about that. They made a false idol their God. It's like the golden calf in, in Exodus 32 when Israel made the calf and they said, this is who brought us out of Egypt. As for that Moses... I don't know what's wrong with him. I don't know what happened to him. They worshiped that calf saying, this is who brought us out of Egypt. That is how idolatry, that is what playing the harlot looks like. We're saying to God, no, you're not God. This person is God. This phone is God. This relationship is God. This presidential candidate is God. This nation, this neighborhood, this material possession is my God. This is the God who brought me up out of my troubles. Not the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not the creator of all the heaven and earth and everything in it. That's what we're saying to God. But what this shows us about the nature of God is that we're going to see there are consequences as always when we fail to remember the Lord. There are consequences. God is gracious. God is loving. God is so merciful to us. But when we forget the Lord God even told Israel, when you come into the land, do not forget. He told them that. When you come into this land, do not forget. Listen, 
This is Deuteronomy, the sixth chapter. This is when they were still in the wilderness. Sixth chapter, beginning at the 10th verse. Look at what the Lord says to them. So it shall be when the Lord your God brings you into the land of which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give you large and beautiful cities which you did not build, houses full of all good things which you did not fill, hewn out wells which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant. When you have eaten and are full, then beware. This is verse 12. Lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. You shall fear the Lord your God and serve him and shall take oaths in his name. You should not go after other gods like Baal Bareth. The gods of the peoples who are all around you. For the Lord your God is a jealous God among you. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be aroused against you and destroy you from the face of the earth. What does it mean that God is a jealous God? It means that God is zealous to protect what belongs to him. He will not allow another to have the honor that is due him alone. That's what it means by God is a jealous God. Not jealous like a boy is jealous if he sees his girlfriend talking to somebody else. No, God is zealous because he deserves all the worship. He deserves all the glory. Why? Because it is he who made us and not we ourselves. It is exactly. He's the creator God. He is the only one who is deserving of any type of worship. First commandment. You should worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. You should have no other gods before me. First two commandments. I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. That's Exodus 20. That's what the Lord says in the opening of the, the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20 and 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You should have no other gods before me. That's the very first commandment. Very first. God alone is to be worshipped. That's what we learn about the nature of God in this passage. He alone is to be worshipped. Christ alone is our king. Number two. The people as Gideon to rule over them, he said, no, the Lord shall rule over you. Guess who rules over us? Christ. Christ is our king. He's our prophet, our priest, and our king. Those are the three offices of Christ. He's our prophet because he was the prophet of God who proclaimed the kingdom of God as the Messiah of God. He's our prophet. He proclaimed God's truth to us. He said in John 8, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. What is the truth? The truth of God. Christ is the revelation of God. As a prophet, as a priest, he serves as our mediator. He intercedes for us on our behalf before God the Father. He advocates for us. He's our advocate. He is our ultimate sacrifice. That's Christ as our priest. Hebrews 4 says that we we don't have a high we have a high priest who is sympathetic to us. And because of his priestly role, we can go before God. That writer Hebrews 4 says, therefore, come boldly before the throne of grace. Why? Because we have a high priest who is Jesus Christ. So he's our prophet. He's our priest and he is our king. He is our ruler. Scripture says that Christ is the what? King of kings and Lord of lords. Christ is our king. He is our king who gave his life. Who died on the cross in our place for our sins as our substitute. He is our king. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is our king. He is the only king that we are to serve. We're not to serve any earthly princes, any earthly leaders. From the local mayor in your town or city councilman all the way up to the White House, all the way up to the, the prime minister of a country or whatever the case may be. Christ alone is king. And he is the only one who should rule over us. And we are to bow down to him as both Lord and Savior. 
That's what we learn from Gideon. All these judges that we see are not perfect. All of them are sinners. Just as we are. Just as our presidents are. Just as our fellow pastors are. All of us are sinners. Christ alone is king. Amen. Thank y'all. May the Lord be with each and every one of us. Amen.